Kieran. And I'm Eve. This is Kitchen Table Cult. We're two quiverful escapees talk about our experiences in the cultish underbelly of the religious right. Hi, Eve. Hi, Kieran. How was how your week? I don't want to talk about it. I hate my book. I don't want to write anything more. I want to quit my job and become a shepherd. I mean, that's something you can do. You have a dog, so you just need sheep. And yeah. She's useless for that, though. (laughs) She just needs to make Um, sheep friends. It's fine. I can make friends with sheep. I I, I just want to steal their wool and make stuff out of it. It's cool. Yeah, it's fine. Um, so, so what are we doing this week? Uh, well, uh, I think we're going to have a friend on to talk about some internet things that happened. Uh, yeah, Chris Droop. Yeah. And also we have a bunch of questions um, that started to pile up in our email that I think we're finally going to get to. So many questions. Yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, it's going to be good. Okay, so we have been just answering some questions, some listener questions, and one of the questions that we got is asking about, like, a day in the life of a kid in a homeschool family, Um, which I think really ties into what we've been talking about on the Expose Christian homeschooling thread this week. Um, So we'd like to talk about that, but we can get into answering that question after we talk about the hashtags. Uh, So, yeah, well... um... I ended up coming up with the Exposed Christian Schools hashtag, uh, not this last Friday, but the Friday before that. And uh, that's when Mike Pence tweeted uh, about, uh, well, he said, uh, attacks on Christian education in America must stop or something like that, right? He said, attacks or attacks. <laughs> uh, no, attacks. Attacks, okay. <laughs> um, I think... He started the tweet. Yeah, no, he did. We could easily find this tweet. But he started the tweet with something like, well, we'll let the criticism roll off, but attacks on Christian education in America must stop. So, you know, really petulant. And David French was whining in National Review, as he does, about this horrible attack on Christian education and how Christians are being so persecuted because people are up in arms that Karen Pence is teaching in a Christian school that discriminates against queer people. Um, So I was like, all right. We need to start telling our stories in order to, um, well, expose them. So that, that was the hashtag that just popped I mean, into my mind. He said it would roll off. He invited it. <laughs> right? He, he literally opened the door for it. He yeah. Well, he said it, it must stop. And yeah. I was like, All right. oh, okay, How about we Drew, start it? It's, it's on now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it is not stopping. It's just getting started. And uh, anyway, it was another one of the hashtags that I've created that like I didn't have, I didn't really talk to anybody about beforehand. It just popped into my head and I just put out a tweet and said, hey, let's use this hashtag. And then I passed it around to some people in groups privately. But, you know, that's not really enough planning to guarantee that you're going to get a viral hashtag. And yet by that Friday night, it was into the top trends on Twitter. And maybe that's because it was a Friday night. And so it didn't have a lot to compete against. You know, when we when we launched um, Exposed Christian Homeschooling that Sunday, like everything was about football. And Mm, yeah. Yeah. Right. It was the playoffs. (laughs) <laughs> so um, so trolls noticed, and I think that then these alt-right trolls kind of kept the hashtag al- uh, alive overnight, actually, by complaining about it. And then... It's weird how that works. Yeah. 
couple of days later, it had some 200,000 tweets. And I don't know if there's any way to know. Oh, and there's also been some dilutions and misspellings. So there's probably a lot more that we haven't found. The, there's a one version going around without the R in Christian um, that has a lot. Of, one going um, around without the C in schools. Yeah, that's got a lot of responses. So there's 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 been some really good conversation. And um, you know, we, we've had you on the show before, um, but what's your personal relationship with, with these stories? Uh, yeah, so I went to homeschool, or not homeschool, to Christian school for uh, most of my childhood. I was in a public school in kindergarten. Uh, and I guess that's because my sister is uh, almost two years younger than me, but one year behind me in school. And my mom was staying home with us until both her kids were in school. And then she had taught in public school for some time when, uh, before I was born, I guess. And then uh, she decided to teach in, in Christian school after that. So uh, I went to Heritage Christian School in Indianapolis in first grade and stayed there through half of sixth grade. That's when we ended up moving to Colorado Springs because dad got a random phone call from a sort of like hip, cool, seeker-sensitive pastor who was recruiting him. And so I got to go to public school for half of sixth grade, the second half of sixth grade in Colorado Springs in 1993. And um, it was it was awkward because, you know, I'd never really been in that environment and I was kind of an awkward, nerdy kid. But I had some friends by the end of that year and I begged my parents to let me stay in public school. But no, then my mom was going to teach at Colorado Springs Christian School, so I had to go to that school. That's the school where I actually had a worksheet that, you know, basically had the whole Curse of Ham theology at least implied in it. Because it showed little arrows from him, uh, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, like, where they went and who their descendants were. And talked about Ham being cursed. So, like, you can pretty easily oh fill in the blanks. Yeah, blatantly racist yeah. curriculum is, is really common. And we were ta- just talking about um, one of our listeners was asking about um, evolution and... Um, you know, you'll hear that later in the episode where we respond to that question. But um, it's the stuff that they they were using these cre- creationist textbooks was often kind of old school, like racism is based on evolution kind of stuff, which is mm-hmm. the weirdest piece of evolu- of like old evolutionary theory to like bring into your creationist textbooks. Yeah, I guess I haven't had a look at them in a long time and. I don't particularly remember that, but I probably just didn't pick up on it. And it may be that I had somewhat different textbooks. I, I do remember the things like the, that picture of a decomposing whale on a Japanese ship that goes around and it's supposed to be like a plesiosaur or oh, something. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 I, It's proof that dinosaurs existed after the flood yeah. or something. Jay Wild and Ken Ham really love that one. Yeah. It, it's also proof that the Loch Ness Monster is real. I've seen that before, too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, so in, what are some of the responses that we've been getting? I mean, I've been engaging a lot with homeschool moms who have, like, kind of created accounts to talk about this, and I, it kind of takes my my Twitter interactions have kind of taken the um, the response that I have with a lot of homeschool parents when I go lobby about these issues, um, where it's like, well, my son was fine, so obviously this isn't a thing or I never saw any abuse in the homeschool group I taught in or, you know, this, that, and the other. And, and a lot of it is just, you have to get them to calm down and remember you're not attacking them. Mm-hmm. And you're not saying that they're bad parents because that's where their immediate defensiveness yep. goes. And once you smooth that over and you say, Hey, no, actually like 
we're just talking about our experiences and what we saw. And that doesn't mean that what you saw and experienced isn't valid. But um, because you did well, don't you want everybody to have that experience? Don't you want your story to be the universal one? And appealing to that, um, it generally tends to diffuse things a little bit. And we've had some like actual, um, you know, good interactions. I've had some people I've had to block because they're just being belligerent and refusing to use any kind of listening skills or empathy. But um, for the most part, I think most of my, my, my negative interactions have have flipped and become like productive conversations that's great that's a really uh smart tactic i can't say that i've really had many of these conversations flip in a good way uh i don't really expect it either and i don't think i've been tweeted at by that many actual homeschooling parents or homeschool graduates i mean you can't really tell right some of them are trolls using talking points that were literally created on 4chan as i discovered (laughs) either hslda 4chan oh my god some of them may actually be real people but they didn't seem they they came in swinging and i just blocked them pretty much because i've been just trying to um hold space for everybody in this conversation who's engaging in good faith and particularly for the people coming from our perspective by retweeting and quote tweeting a lot, tweeting some of my own experience, but also putting it in more of like an abstract framework for people to look at and pushing back against the huge right-wing rage machine that responded over the course of the week. And right now, um, if you do a Google search for the hashtag exposed Christian schools, um, I haven't tried exposed Christian homeschooling for this, but the first one um, you get just a bunch of right-wing websites pushing a completely false narrative about where the hashtag came from as your top results, which is disappointing, but it also means we really hit a nerve here. Yeah, so what, what did you see on 4chan, and what are, what are these sites saying about the origins of the hashtags? The first thing that I saw on 4chan that actually happened, I think, Friday, that same Friday night, was um, they were saying, like, well, let's push back with um, exposed Islamic schools or exposed Jewish schools or exposed public schools. Which is just so racist, I can't even. Yeah. And um, so those were some of the talking points that entered the conversation. Um, Well, conversation in air quotes. (laughs) But when Dan Levin of the New York Times contacted me the other day to say he wanted to do a piece... um, talking about this hashtag because he said he was really shocked at these stories. He had no idea this whole parallel world existed. And that's great because (laughs) we've been trying to break through forever to get like coastal Mm -hmm. elites to understand that this world This is such a common response. Anytime I I go to in democratic circles, I'm like, yeah, actually, this is a problem. They're like, whoa, I thought this didn't exist anymore. Yep. Mm -hmm. And it's very frustrating because they allow the right to dominate that space and then they let the New York Times and Washington Post write fluff pieces about evangelicals and normalize extremism, or they often let evangelicals cover themselves. Uh, So this is this is big that someone at the New York Times wants to pay attention to this hashtag. Now, here I made a mistake and I played into the hands of of the trolls who then move on, you know, through. Um, Town Hall and Breitbart to Fox News. And the hashtag has been discussed on Fox News at least twice now. Congrats, I talk guess. About Dan Le- talk, talk about Dan Levin and... Yeah, so I wanted to say, you know, I made, I made yeah. a mistake after I talked to him by saying, because uh, he wanted me to introduce him to other people. And since he's a youth reporter, he initially suggested I put him in touch with younger graduates. Um, so I said, you know, I'll, I can definitely mention this in some groups and, you know, have some people reach out to you, but why don't you just put out a tweet and I can amplify it? 
that tweet was quickly bombarded. And then I also saw that on 4chan, um, with a, there was a lot of anti-Semitic slurs involved. They were saying, you know, we need to go attack this tweet. And they ratioed it like crazy. Can you define that term for our listeners? Yeah, I was going to say, wait for the, <laughs> what's a ratio? For the moms at home. <laughs> ratio refers to the ratio of likes and retweets versus replies. So often, if there are a lot more replies than likes and retweets, that means that the tweet is getting negative pushback. Uh, but anyway, I've got the screenshots. Um, this was a very coordinated effort from 4chan, and then it was picked up by certain um, verified right-wing Twitter users like Ben Shapiro. And uh, oh, so gross. he got hammered. And I think Poor they guy. were trying to shut down the whole... I, th I think they were trying to get him to quit and not write the story. He's he's still writing the story. He tried to clarify, you know, I didn't create this hashtag. It was already a viral hashtag. Uh, I want to write about people's responses to it and, you know, not just do that in a one-sided way. But, yeah, the, then the whole right-wing blogosphere and kind of online media sphere just filled with these stories about, oh, look, it's a Jewish reporter who's trying to slam Christian schools. He's fishing for uh, negative stories about Christian schools. It's an attack on Christianity. Oh, my God. And that's kind of my fault, and I feel terrible for it. But Because <laughs> I was like, why don't you just put out a tweet? I had no idea, though, that they were ready to mobilize that quickly. Um, the, the right really hates this hashtag. Well, that's good. I mean, that means we are doing what we should be yeah. doing. I This is one of those few instances where I think that opposition is a positive thing. And and obviously we need to be careful. And if you're sharing your stories, like give yourself two-factor authentication and like check and make sure all your passwords are, yeah. are secure. But um, I think this is really healthy and really good that this conversation started and that people are interested in covering it. Yeah, I think so too. Um, right now, what bothers me though is that if you just Google it, you're, you're gonna get you know all the stuff from Town Hall and Breitbart and mm -hmm. um, you know wherever else, all these trash sites and fake news sites. Um, but I think once the New York Times story does come out and there will be some more blog posts and um, uh, perhaps some other comments, maybe an op-ed or something, it'll start to even out again and uh, people will be able to get the, the real story of the hashtag, you know, and why we're having these conversations about exposed Christian schools and exposed Christian homeschooling in an easier way. Of all the right-wing fake news approaches to this out there, well, I haven't actually clicked on and looked at all of them, but as far as I'm aware, only one of them, the first one that was on the Daily Caller, refers to me and says, I claimed to create, to create the hashtag because what they want to do is plant the idea that this is a conspiracy of a leftist mob attacking Christianity. Right, and some right. people on Twitter wow, have, been running with that. <laughs> have been running with that and saying that the whole thing was a setup to get the MAGA boys because, yeah, I have a time machine or whoever is paying me. George Soros. Yeah, we a, definitely planned it around. <laughs> What's the name of the school? Covington Catholic? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we 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 totally didn't coordinate it with that. It was uh, a really, really bizarre universe coincidence, but 
Yeah, and that was, oh, we, I didn't mention earlier, but that is what kind of kept the hashtag going and made it more viral. And some things then did get kind of muddled and confused because there are serious differences between, say, evangelical schools, which is what I designed the hashtag for as a protest against this like petulant defense of Karen Pence teaching at a discriminatory school, in which capacity mm-hmm. she obviously cannot represent all Americans. This is a big fuck you mm-hmm. to queer Americans mm-hmm. and women and, you know, uh, marginalized groups. But yeah, then there, there's big differences between that kind of school and some Catholic schools and like Episcopal schools. And, you know, that all got lost when suddenly a bunch of people assumed Covington started the hashtag or the hashtag yeah. started about Covington. Well, good journalism is going to look at these things a little bit more slowly and use nuance. And um, that's why, you know, all the coverage of it so far is just terrible. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, except for the Daily Dot and... Um, paper magazine Mm -hmm. but those uh, sources are not they don't have the visibility of the new york times and right now the right-wing narrative is overwhelming them in the search results you can find them if you go down a little bit further but yeah these right-wing sources are obviously not interested in due diligence they're just interested in pushing a narrative that uh, deflects from the criticism that the hashtag actually represents yeah well anything to like shine the light away from themselves really Mm-hmm. Yeah, they don't want to engage with with me as the person who created the hashtag because I was traumatized in Christian school environments, or with any of the of us who are actually telling our real stories. So they don't want to present us as real people. Right. They want to want to present us as a leftist mob attacking Christianity and probably being paid by George Soros. <laughs> so. <laughs> Full disclosure: I gave it. I gave a lunchtime talk at Open Society Foundations in New York once. I got a flight to New York, a nice hotel near Broadway, and a lunch, a free lunch. That's all I've ever gotten from George Soros. You're a paid protester. <laughs> yeah, you're. God, you're rolling in it. You're, How can yeah, I trust like, you? That's, that's just lucrative. Well, thank you so much for the work you've been doing and for um, joining us here to talk about it. And hopefully we can um, get a little mo- bit more traction on this in the next week or so. Uh, yeah, I hope so. We'll maybe see another upsurge with the New York Times article, and I hope we'll get more attention for exposed Christian homeschooling as well. And thanks for everything that you're doing with kind of talking down to some of these angry moms. <laughs> That's what I'm good at. <laughs> <laughs> All, All right, right. Take care. Bye. Bye. So we were just joined by Chris Stroop, um, and we'll put his um Twitter information um, at the end of this episode that you can find. Um, and Kieran, we had one more one question that we wanted to answer from one of our listeners. Yeah, that connects with this. Yeah. Um, what is the daily life of a homeschool kid like? What What was your day to day? My day to day was very simple. Um, we had to be up and dressed and fed and breakfast chores done by 8.30 and in the living room for Bible time, which my mom led. And that usually lasted an hour, 45 minutes to an hour. Um, And that would involve like some worship songs, reading some Bible stories, having a discussion, having some prayer requests and prayer time. And then we get going on school um, like 9, 9.30 and uh, mom would usually work with the little kid, whoever was the youngest, um, who was in school on homework while we would scatter to the four winds uh, to try to find a, a quiet spot to work. For a number of years, my mom tried to keep us all at the kitchen table, but by the time I was 
13, I was so stressed out by hearing, you know, whoever was the six-year-old having a meltdown about not wanting to read that Mm -hmm. she finally had mercy on me to let me go do math in my room. So we'd go do work, and then 11.30 to 1, the kitchen would be open, Mm -hmm. quote-unquote, and we could come in and make ourselves lunch, which was usually, like, leftovers or quesadillas or something, and then we'd go back to do schoolwork. Um, and usually we got done with school around 3, 3.30, and between finishing school and 5 o'clock when, or 5.30 when my dad would come home would be our time to do chores around the house, errands like grocery shopping, or um, if there was socializing that was happening, we'd do it then. But it was kind of like ostensibly free time. Mm-hmm. But it wouldn't ever really be. So I'd, you know, get myself comfortable with a book and think like, oh, I finally, you know, arrived. I did my chores. Like my zone, we had like a, an area of the house that was our, our personal responsibility. My zone was clean. Um, like my room is clean. I can, my work's done. I can do, read or do something fun. And then it would be like, why are you lying around? Get mm-hmm. up and help me. Get, you know, do this, do that. Yep. Your father's coming home. He's going to lose, you know, he's going to basically lose his shit if he sees the house like this. Um, you know, yeah. Clean up. Like, so I had to do everything else. So it would often turn into like, don't even think about using that free time. Just make yourself available and be around and help. So helping with dinner prep or chores or watching siblings while mom went grocery shopping through the doctors. And then my dad would get home, and he would pretty much always have, have a hissy fit about how messy the house was, and like be just completely overwhelmed of like going from like a you know quiet, sane office environment to like chaos with nine kids, and everybody's like mm. creative and loud and hungry and yelling and like irritated at each other and like cooped up and like stressed because we've just been like doing an emergency clean to like make him happy, and obviously it's not good enough, so he's not happy, and you know. Yep. So that would be chaos, and then we'd have dinner. And my dad didn't allow us to talk until we were done eating. And if he wasn't done monologuing about his day at that point, he would often just, like, excuse you from the table so that he could keep talking and you wouldn't interrupt him. Whoa. He, he really preferred to eat in silence if he, other than him and mom talking. Um, and after that, it would be dinner chores and bedtime routines and help with everything and help with everything and help with everything. And then I would have a little bit of time on my own if I'd done all my work. Um, and if I didn't, I would have to do more homework then. And uh, I would sometimes try to get time with my mom when I was in high school or um, after the little kids were in bed and before she finished winding down. So I'd like help her fold laundry and we'd have a conversation or whatever. But like clockwork every night, my dad would come downstairs at 10 and be like, I need your mom, go to bed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like... So that would be when he'd, he'd call it for the house. And I was almost never tired at, at that point. So I would just like go to bed and take a flashlight and read for a couple hours um, because that was like the only time I could get both alone time and, you know, fun reading. Yeah. Yeah. My was really similar. Uh, I had to be uh, awake and dressed and my bed made and uh, making breakfast for everyone at eight. Um, and everyone would eat breakfast at eight, and then at like eight thirty nine, we would have devotions that would be about like a half hour or so. 
Yeah, so I think we did that at like 8.30 and then at 9 we would start school and we would do school until 11 and usually it was my mom working with the little kids and then I would go do whatever my school was or uh, wind up helping with the other kids' school. Uh, and then at 11 I would stop whatever I was doing and make lunch um, mm-hmm. for everyone and then at like... One, we would like have lunch and then clean up and like start on chores. Uh, and then from like one thirty to three, uh, was free time for basically everyone except me. Uh, so <laughs> they all got to go play and whatever. And in theory, I would also get to go play, but really it was I was doing whatever chores needed to be done. So at that point, I would start on the infinite laundry. Um, and it was always like a this thing of like, in theory, they would help with things, but it's like too much work to like wrestle young kids yeah, to do that work. Yeah, so then it just be- became like, let's just slap it on the oldest kid yep. and it's fine. Yeah, and it and it's like easier than trying to teach four kids how to load a laundry machine. It's Yeah. Yeah, And so, yeah, I wound up just, like, doing the inside chores. And then I would, if I was lucky, have, like, an hour at three. Girls have to do inside chores. Right, exactly. I was never allowed (laughs) to take out the trash or mow the lawn or any of that. Um, That's so funny. But everything inside I did. I loved mowing the lawn. And then my little brother was like, no, I'm going to be the man of the house if dad dies. So I have to do it. Uh, Let me have it. Because he wanted it, like, to push the powerful machine. Yeah. And I was like, this is my alone time. This is not fair. Yep. Yeah. And then at, like, four uh, is when I would, like, put PBS on for the kids and start making dinner. That way, when Dad got home at, like, 5, 5.30, dinner was ready. Oh, yeah, that was the other thing. Like, dinner like has to be PBS ready. While you, yeah, yeah, we had to start, we had to put on PBS to keep the little yep. kids occupied yep. so they wouldn't make more messes. Yep. Yep. Yeah. We did that, too. Yeah, because, mm-hmm. like, you also have to clean. So, like, I I would be, like, God. making dinner after, like, cleaning from 3 to 4 to make sure everything was ready for Dad to get home. So then I had to quarantine the kids because otherwise I'd make more messes. And yeah, mm-hmm. and so then I would cook dinner from like four to five and then dad would get home and we'd eat dinner and I would serve everyone. I would serve myself last. And sometimes we kind of tried to wait ish for everyone to like sit and eat, but that's just not how that works out. Oh my God. My dad was so strict about that. Yeah. We couldn't take a bite until mom had taken her first bite. Yeah. My parents like kind of tried that but at some point like my mom's pregnancies were so bad that half the time we didn't all eat dinner together because Mm -hmm. like so I would like make mom whatever it was that she wanted to eat and make something else entirely for everyone else and we just like it became more chaotic than together so I would just wind up serving people and then like at the end of it yeah yeah like it it was like everyone needs to eat and it's too chaotic to try and rally everyone right now so we'll just do this for years, I used to have I we never really diagnosed it, but it would would be this like reflexive muscle thing that I wouldn't be able to swallow properly when I was stressed at, mm. and eating dinner at home. So like food would go up into my into my sinus cavity. Sorry, this is gross. <laughs> um, but like I would choke on food getting stuck up in my nose uh. because I wouldn't be able to 
ate I was like, it was basically, I was like having an anxiety attack while eating dinner and I didn't realize I was. Mm. And so um, when I went to college was when I really first started noticing this because it stopped happening as often. So when I went to the cafeteria during like rush hour, I would have that happen and I thought it was like odd. And then when I would eat breakfast like alone, uh, like during chapel and like everything was quiet on like mornings I wasn't supposed to be in chapel, I could... It, nothing would happen. It would be fine. And so I was like, this is really weird. I wonder what this is. And then I went home for fall break and then for Thanksgiving break and Christmas break and it always happened at home. And then I remembered like, oh, this has been happening for years during high school. I just like didn't think about it because it was so normal mm-hmm. until it stopped happening. And then as soon as I stopped eating dinner in chaotic environments, it doesn't happen. But it's it, very, very rarely will it happen. Like if I'm out at a, a crowded bar and I'm trying to eat or I'm like really hungry yeah, and I'm in a, like a loud space. So if, like, a restaurant's too loud, like, I will, like, not be able to finish my food because I, I, I'll start having that happen again. But um, for years, I would just, like, avoid eating rice at in the cafeteria because I would just, like, all get stuck in my nose. Yeah, that's fair. That Yeah, that makes sense. But, um, yeah, it, uh, these environments are super, super stressful. Yeah. And you wouldn't be able to, like, have needs or, like, ask for anything. No. Because no, and, like, all my siblings had to eat all of, like, the food because they were the ones who were growing and somehow I wasn't. So that, like, laid all of the foundation for this awesome eating disorder that I have. That's great. Would, <laughs> would your parents hit the kids if they didn't um, finish eating all the food on no, the plate? No, no. My parents... Or them to bed without food if they were being picky? Mm, no. My parents, my like, knew better than to force their kids to finish eating. Um, because I used to get really carsick and so like we would go out to eat on Sunday and then I would just like get sick. And so they realized that like if they stopped telling me to eat everything, I would stop when I was full or like before I was even full and then not get sick. So they like learned with me to like listen to their kids when they're like, I can't eat anymore and not make them finish. Yeah. Um, which is like good and really rare because everyone i know was like their parents were like no you have to finish it yeah my parents were like no we don't want to deal with vomit so (laughs) don't bother trying to finish it yeah no it was uh like we're gonna serve you this for breakfast if you don't finish it oh my god and if you won't eat it you can go to bed now and go to bed hungry and like you'll eat it yeah yeah my parents like didn't have much empathy for just not wanting to eat a thing but like they also wouldn't make you finish it so like if you didn't want to eat like all your green beans like they'd make you eat some of your green beans because you have to eat some green beans but they wouldn't make you eat all of them they'd just be like okay have like three bites and if you can do three bites then it's fine that's like quasi reasonable yeah exactly so it's like you know you still have to get your green vegetable because like it's important but you don't have to eat all of it so they were okay with that but yeah and then like when i got into high school and it took me longer than two hours to do my school my mom got really angry with me and i would like wind up you know spending more time doing school and then being behind on the chores and behind on lunch and behind on dinner and i would have to do it like after everyone went to bed which was the only time that i had to myself and then like at some point i was like getting four or five hours of sleep a night because I like worked so long all day and still had to do homework and then still wanted to like 
have friends and unwind. <laughs> I had to, I, I, I would start pulling studies out for, for my mom. I'd be like, look, no, like teenagers actually need more sleep than like your elementary school kids do. Like, because we're going through all these like hormonal changes and your brain is growing and all this mm-hmm. stuff. Like I actually do need like nine to 10 hours of sleep a night and you're not letting me have it. And like, here, look all my friends in church. Like here's what they, the hours that they're spending on schoolwork. And like, this isn't fair. You have to let me, this is when I was like arguing to be allowed to study in my room. Uh, so it was just like, yeah. you know, like I have to get stuff done. Otherwise I can't help you because yep. then it's going to cut into my sleep time and I'm going to be a mess. So I like pulled together this like scientific thing as like a <laughs> like way to negotiate for any amount of space that I could get. Yeah. And it, it sort of worked. It didn't really, but I definitely had a bit of a an easier time in high school because I did do that. That makes sense. Yeah. So hopefully that answers that question. <laughs> so we have so many questions right now just piled up in our inbox (laughs) everybody wants to know something yes which is great and good because then we know what to talk about uh so what what are what's the one that we should tackle first i think the easiest one to answer maybe would be the the personal experience about uh creationism versus evolution yes this is a question from our listener jenny yeah so what was your experience (laughs) So we used to, we had uh, a TV for about half of my childhood. And once we got a TV, we only watched PBS. We never had cable. And we would listen, we would watch um, like Magic School Bus and Bill Nye the Science Guy as like, I don't know, I think mom counted them for school, like as Mm -hmm. academic shows. I mean, obviously, not obviously. Some people, it would not be obvious. For, but we didn't have that as our only scientific ed- education, thankfully. But it was supplemental material that mom was encouraging us to watch. And if <laughs> any either of those shows or any of the characters in the shows would start talking about evolution, um, mom would kind of do what she would do with like censoring kissing and in, in like movies, where she'd like put a pillow up over the TV and be like la 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 la. And even if she wasn't around, we would just do it for her because we were taught that that was something that we just shouldn't even consider yep. taking seriously at all or listen to. Yep, I was the same way. And uh, yeah, I also loved Bill Nye the Science Guy and the Magic School Bus. But as soon as the episode about evolution came on, we had to turn it off. Like we, we couldn't, we weren't allowed to mm-hmm. watch it because, and we always had like this lecture that, followed it about how evolution is wrong and it's a lie by the devil to make you not believe in god and we all know (laughs) that god created the earth in seven literal days and all of those things well and then and then i got to college and at my school we had um science professors who were teaching literal seven-day creationism and then we had a couple of professors who were teaching divine intervention evolution so Mm -hmm. like saying that like well the the seven days is a piece of poetry in genesis and it's not actually reflective of real time and it's just a way of remembering like certain attributes of god or whatever and and so um you can't take it seriously because it's literature it's it's a literary expression of a narrative 
And they would say that they believed in old earth creationism. So that like evolution mm-hmm. and the theory of evolution were valid, but that the Big Bang was was when God said, let there be light. Like that was the way they saw it. And then um, my, my roommate in college actually that year, um, I hope she doesn't mind me telling the story, but she was engaged to someone. Um, it was our senior year. So we were both engaged and her engagement actually ended while we were in school that year. And it wasn't totally because of this, but like where it all like kind of the conflict started mm-hmm. on some levels was her dad was really upset that her fiance did not believe in literal seven day creationism. Yeah. yeah. And he like kept bringing this up as an issue and being like, yeah, but this fiance is just like, I don't know that he's really a Christian because of this. Yep. Yeah, I remember my parents talking about the people who believed in old earth creationism and how wrong they were because the Bible is literal. Uh, And I remember like, even when we went to any science museum, we would always like self-censor. And my mom Mm -hmm. would read like the thing about evolution and then be like, and remember, that's not true. Well, it it would kind of pair like the the aggressiveness that they, they... struck out evolution as an idea kind of compared to how um i think a lot of people saw divorce like yeah i remember my one of my dad's college friends got divorced and he got off the phone with him and he hung up and he's like he's deluded himself i don't know that he's a believer in, anymore i don't think we can be friends with him anymore and i was like why Whoa. and he's like well he says that he believes it's god's will for him to divorce which means he's clearly not hearing from god because God hates divorce and the Bible says so. Mm-hmm. And it was the, it was that kind of that kind of absolutist stance about creationism. Yeah. Like Darwin Darwin was as bad as Hillary Clinton who was the antichrist. Obviously, like, sheer evil. obviously yeah. you couldn't believe in that and be a Christian. Right. Yeah. Did you come across the like argument about macroevolution versus microevolution? And how, like, the one kind of evolution is okay and the other isn't. Right, right. So this is, I think, Jay Weil um, talks about this in his his science books, which were used as a textbooks for me, um, the Apology of Science mm-hmm. curriculum, um, which provides creationist propaganda, Under biology, this. chemistry, and <laughs> physics for um, homeschool high schoolers. Um, and he talked about, yeah, so things like, bone structure changing or breeds changing um like you look at like dogs how they shift or or like the 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 finches beaks that um darwin observed in the galapagos like saying that those were legitimate microevolution is real we see this in real time it's measurable but we've never seen any species jumps so clearly that's not real right obviously that's, because we have to see it. Right. That's how science works. Legitimate. And they also, like, along those lines, like, threw a lot of shade on carbon dating and were like, yeah, the Grand Canyon was caused by the flood mm-hmm. and, 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 and. Yeah. And it all happened so fast that it smushed the dinosaurs and that's why we have petroleum. Mm-hmm. I think I saw Ken Ham at a vacation Bible school thing one year. So did I. Yeah, and it was like he's so condescending. Oh my god, like that man is is. so unbearable to listen to, even if you're sold on his ideas. Yeah, yeah. All I remember was that he said we could ride dinosaurs, 
So. I mean, that's a fantasy I want to believe in. I'm going to keep that in the Tumblr fanfic world. Right. Okay, so good question. Thank you, Jenny. <laughs> Did you ever have any experience with, uh, like, multi-level marketing things in, like, your churches and whatnot? Um, I have a lot of rage about this. I don't know if I should talk about it. Okay, so... I have to be really careful to talk about this because, as I said, I have a lot of rage. But um, multi-level marketing is a thing that is largely aimed at poor people. Mm -hmm. It's a class oppression tool. It's a trick to make people hustle and think that they're improving themselves and steal all their money and their time. And it's really – it's a really – it's a really shitty capitalist trick. And so I still know a lot of people who are lower income class level who don't have access to other kinds of qualified, like other kinds of labor that like might provide for them better. And so they still keep doing mm-hmm. these things. Yeah. Um, so it's not resp- specifically Christian. Um, it happens to be more common in low income communities. It happens to be look more common in um communities that have lower like levels of education per capita um and a lot of this has to do with um health and wealth gospel teaching prosperity gospel stuff and um i think there's a lot of a lot that can be looked into in terms of like how um racism and white supremacy play into who is targeted with these things just like with redlining and yep. uh l- lending predatory lending practices. So I think a lot of this is like just systemic America is shitty at race and class stuff. Yeah, I saw a lot of that. A lot of like it was really prevalent in some of the churches that I was in when I moved to Metro Atlanta actually Uh that was a huge thing which makes sense because it is like where i lived was a very like rural and poor community and a lot of these homeschool families are very large and very poor and so the way that like it became a thing where all of the girls i knew were part of mary Kay or Mm -hmm. whatever makeup selling like it was mary Kay, arbonne norwex bread beckers um Tupperware yeah. was around in San Francisco when my parents were living there. I didn't particularly see it, but my mom went to parties when she was a newlywed there. So I don't know what else you saw, but like these are the things I saw. But I think a lot of the, if you look at a lot of the homeschool curriculum um, distribution models, a lot of them are kind of based off of that. Mm-hmm. Like I think sunlight curriculum is based off of that. Um, we have to put in like bulk orders and go through yep. a representative. Um, there's a couple others that do it like that too. Yeah. Yeah. It was like a weird, it was the only way that like the women could have a job or any income. Uh, I mean, it's it's like like the way I experienced it. It's the 20th and 21st century version of like selling your eggs so you can have like pocket change to like get cute lace things for your hat or whatever back in. Yeah. Pioneer times. Yeah, exactly. And so it like turned into that, but it's just this terrible like 
trap. And I always, I was never a part of that. I always thought it was weird and sketchy. And like, why do you have to spend so much money to sell these things that like, it's ridiculous. But it was a huge part of like the community that I was in. Yeah. So I think one of the things that's interesting about this is um, my family never, my parents, I'll clarify, I have siblings who have done multi-level marketing things. My ex-husband sold Cutco for a minute, um, which is a whole other story. Um, But none of my parents didn't participate in this and they always looked askance at this stuff. Um, My mom like hated Mary Kay and our bond parties. Yeah. Like so much to like hear her talk about she's like terrified of makeup and it's not because she's scared of the concept of makeup she's terrified of the sales people because of bad experiences with our bond and mary Kay people so um but the the i think the reason that they distrusted it is because my father came from an upper middle class family where both of his parents had gone to um graduate programs gone through his dad had a phd and his mom had a master's like Mm -hmm. they like didn't need it yeah so they could see through it because they had had some like financial education and had access to better resources and then my mom's dad is um was a union worker for his entire life so he worked in factories in san francisco in the bay area and he was always part of a union and i think that too like knowing your rights and Mm -hmm. knowing how your labor benefits your superiors in those kinds of systems and taking advantage of that and you know getting representation and having power at the negotiating table those things were passed on to my mom and so we just kind of i mean i got this education i don't think a lot of my younger siblings did Mm -hmm. i've had a couple siblings who've done multi-level marketing jobs for you know here and there um but they're just trying to hustle because they you know a lot of them didn't finish college and a lot of them didn't go to college and and they're they're just trying to put food on the table and you know yeah to live off a taco bell yeah yeah and i feel like it kind of does work really well in the church because it kind of mirrors that too where it's like you're trying to get people to give money to god and it like (laughs) a lot of a lot of the things that happen were like all church people and done in like Bible studies. And the the guilt tripping for tithing mm-hmm. that gets really heavy in these places and it's like, okay, where does that money actually go? And like how what is the return on investment? Like there's no accountability. No. These 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 or institutions are tax exempt. Yep. Like it's so corrupt. It's always so corrupt. Yeah. Um and you're conditioned to just accept that like that's normal and hope that eventually right. you will be good enough that like you'll you know, be stable right. because and God will bless to, you. And that's the other add thing. That to, yeah. is the prosperity gospel stuff is the, like, if you are faithful and you claim your blessings from God, because you are an heir to this kingdom, then you will succeed. And if you're not succeeding, you're clearly not in obedience and you have a sin issue in your life and you're ignoring mm-hmm. it. Like that's another way to keep people super trapped super anxious and super guilty and um and multi-level marketing plays on all of those things so it's it's a very it's a very natural bedfellow it's not necessarily something that organically grows out of evangelicalism but it does it does kind of work with it particularly in america because of the capitalist society we live in. yeah 
Yeah, they're not like necessarily related, but they can be hand in hand a yeah, lot of the time. Really yeah. Like there are some pastors who do the like they'll pray over your cloth that you send them or whatever, and that's just an entire like you send them so much money scheme. John Oliver did a sort of expose You're talking about, bit like, on the that. Television, yeah, the, the television, television pastors. Preachers? Yeah. 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 And he like went through this process and like gave several hundred or thousand dollars to this like one church for like nothing. Mm-hmm. And like it's just it's not part of the religion or Christianity or any of that, but it sure goes along really well with it. Yeah, and I, I will say something too. There's a movement in, in the 80s that came out of the Jesus movement called the Shepherding Movement. And if you look into the Shepherding Movement, there's another element of how this these sorts of marketing schemes can take root because um, and how pastors can have that kind of control over the congregations. The Shepherding Movement kind of reinstated um, kind of a Catholic-style hierarchy, honestly. No, no shade, no tea on Catholics, like – They've gone through a lot and have evolved a lot, but um, some of so there have been times where um, whoever the leader was claiming to hear from God and was really pushing um, their authority and their direct access, and you were having to go through them. Mm-hmm. Um, and the shepherding movement is kind of based on that, where it's like okay, whoever God is called to lead this congregation, like, they're the ones who have, God has, like, blessed and wants to communicate through. So because this person can hear from God and can take your concerns to God, you have to go to them for advice on all these things. Yep. And so once you distrust your your ability to discern for yourself um, about your spiritual well-being and um about like big life decisions and you have to go through your pastor they can use that to do control creep and start being like well you know but like buying a car is a really big decision so don't you know make that decision without consulting your pastor and like sending your child to college is a really big decision and like go through the pastor and the pastor should sign off on it because the pastor is hearing from god and they're like put put over you to protect you from you know stepping outside of god's will and god's circle of blessing and and then it can get down to little things like do you pay off your credit card bill or tithe to the church yep. and the pastor can just rake it in yep. and so these sorts of situations it's just it's it's gaslighting it's manipulative it's shady yeah and um they're just not held account- accountable in any in any circumstance yep it's just so exploitive the whole thing and I, I will say if, if anyone's interested in looking up in um, the shepherding movement stuff there's there's a pretty good Wikipedia article on it that's got a lot of links out um, but the the sovereign grace ministries um, stuff came out of the shepherding movement CJ Mahaney um, his wife came from Florida and her dad had been involved in the shepherding movement and her dad kind of mentored him. So he got, stole some of that material, took it to Sovereign Grace and reinvented it to create this organization that was like covering up um, repeat sexual offenders, pedophiles, um, other kinds of other criminals and just like using his like God-given authority to make everybody shut up and like forgive the offenders. So gross. 
It's so gross. So yeah, um, trust your gut. Listen to yourself. Yeah. And, um, don't listen to the pa- don't let the pastor tell you that God is speaking to them and not you. Yeah. No. Actually, this. <laughs> sorry, I can't stop talking about this. This came into my relationship with my father at one point because I had all these guys interested in me first year of college because I was the nice girl who listened and all the nerdy boys were really excited about that. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of, you know, I'm kind of a domestic goddess because I got trained so well. And so I was just like, hey, I'm making cookies. Everybody come hang out. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, obviously all the like tiny nerd boys are going to be excited about that. I had one of them tell me we had to date because he had prayed about it and God told him I was the one. And I turned it on him, and I was like, yeah, well, I've been praying about it, and God didn't tell me that either. So, you know, go back and talk to him, and tell him to tell me, and then we'll talk about it. Right. (laughs) But that's that's it. And then um, then my father, like, let me change churches out of the Sovereign Grace Ministries denomination to go to a Presbyterian church in town. And I, like, prayed about it and, like, was like, yeah, I think God is – I don't think there's any – checks in my spirit mm-hmm. about it like i felt like it, it was something god was gonna bless i guess i don't even know how to talk this way I anymore. Know. <laughs> and then um and then like a month or two months later um my ex and i decided that like kissing was on the table and our whole courtship like we didn't need to get my my father's permission to kiss mm-hmm. And that it, we were we would you know set up accountability partners and boundaries and da 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 we did this whole thing, yeah. and when my dad found out later he was like you have de- de- deliberately rejected my authority over you, and I was like, but uh-huh. honey, <laughs> you said yep, I I could go to the church, but and the church is like just a bit uh, just as big of a deal, right? And and so now I suddenly can't hear from God for myself about yep. Kissing? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. My parents also tried to do that when I was courting. They were like, uh, you can totally hear from God. Like, you're an adult. You are accountable to God on your own. You can hear from God on your own. Uh, it's fine. Um, because they really wanted me to get married when I was 16. And... Uh, I was like, cool. So they spent the entire year that I was 16 uh, telling me that I was an adult in the eyes of God and could hear from God for myself and interpret his will on my own and not have to go through anyone else. Uh, And then when I wasn't engaged, um, when I was like 17 and a half, they suddenly were like, um, no, you can't actually hear from God. And they were like, well, we think you should, uh, break up. And I was oh, like, yeah. uh, I don't think so. They're like, well, you should pray about it. And I was like, okay. So I prayed about it. And I was like, <laughs> God didn't tell me to break up. And they're like, well, <laughs> I put out a fleece. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> they're like, well, um, obviously you're not listening to God and you clearly cannot discern God's voice. And I'm like, that's. <laughs> Not how that works. Like. <laughs> okay. So after this, the next thing that happened, I'm just giving away all these stories. This is bad. Um, I, I know we were, we were talking around this time because this yeah. is around the time when you got out. Yep. Um, and so you thought this was particularly funny around that time. I remember. 
Um, we had the my father and I in our conversation about the kissing stuff. He we use that like I am an adult, and he like that question of like was I an adult? Could I hear from God on my own? Mm-hmm. And before he had said like you're an adult. I've raised you well. I trust your judgment. And that was with the church. And then suddenly I wasn't an adult. I was under his authority and he didn't trust my my judgment. And I was like, which is it? Yep. And um, he, he was like, well, why don't you do a concordance search and come back to me and tell me what the biblical definition of an, an adult is? Because obviously – Super libertarian, like the 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 government doesn't count unless like it's in the Bible. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, you're not married in the eyes of God if you get married at a courthouse wedding. You have to get married by a pastor and that right, kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah. So, um, so <laughs> we had to go with like what does the Bible say in terms of legal being an legal and adult and so i like did all this old testament law research <laughs> and I wrote a fucking five page paper about it and I sent it to him and I was like. The census took place when you were 17 and you got counted as a man at that point. And like, so as a woman, like you could, you could technically own property if your father died at that point in your life. And like, so 17 is the biblical age of, of adulthood. And here's all these resources to like back up my point and all these passages to back up what I'm saying. And like theologians agreeing with me and da, 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 da. And I sent it to him. And he responded with, we're going to have to agree to disagree. <laughs> I beat him at his own game. And it's, and and so, but that's what this, this kind of um, shepherding movement, multi-level marketing stuff, this um, top-down hierarchy in the church, like, it teaches you to not do that. It mm-hmm. teaches you to distrust your gut, distrust your own ability to reason. And it puts you in the position of, Anytime you have questions, you have to lay them aside and roll belly up and just submit. Yeah. And I wasn't willing to do that, which is why I'm where I am today. Yep. Same. It's a good, it's a good club. It's a good club. (laughs) (laughs) So hopefully that answered your question about if we had any experience with that. Um, Turns out. We have feelings we about it. Uh, <laughs> um, okay, one other question that we had um, that's interesting: um, vaccinations, doctor visits, home births. We've talked a lot about this in various different formats. You and I have very different experiences on this. Yeah. What do you got? Uh, so my parents uh, looked up in the concordance what the greek word for medicine was and found out it was pharmakia which then they somehow discovered meant witchcraft so <laughs> wait what i never heard that yeah i don't think that's how that works at all in fact i'm pretty sure that like the greek for i will just hold on i'm gonna google this now i mean historically witches have always been healers like well, that's the problem is they like actually have power to yeah, so in according because they hate no stuff. According to the Blue Letter Bible, which is what my parents used, uh, pharmacia means uh, the use or administering of drugs, poisoning, sorcery, uh, or the depictions and seductions of idolatry. So, <laughs> because of because of because the word for medicine 
in the Greek, according to the Blue Letter Bible online, says that the Greek word uh, pharmakia is witchcraft. Yeah, means it's witchcraft. Doctors are literally of the devil. And therefore, we cannot go to doctors. And this is why when I was like 16, I had an infection on my legs for a year and a half that was never treated with anything other than fucking oregano oil. (laughs) Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, my parents were like, um, no, doctors are evil. They discovered that when they were in this cult uh, that I've talked about before uh, called Cleansing Stream, which is this faith healing cult. You can look it up uh, that, you know, basically says that doctors are evil, although I don't think they publicize as loudly um, it in that way. But as they talk about right, it. Yeah. Uh, but they believe yeah. that, like, you know, only God can heal you. And I think my parents even took it further than like the cult intended because I think the cult was still like, I mean, obviously, if you're dying, see a doctor. Mm-hmm. But I could just be being a reasonable human being and thinking, like, there's no way that like anyone else could think that. Um, but my parents, either way, from the cult directly or from their own extrapolation, uh, when I was seven, seven or eight, uh, decided to stop seeing doctors, including dentists. Um, mm. And from then on, uh, we lived by James 5.14, uh, which is, if there's any sick among you, call upon the elders of the church, confess sins, whatever. God will heal you if you're good. Um, well, yeah, right, right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so anytime that we were sick, it was obviously because we were sinful in some way, uh, or God was using it, uh, like he used Job, um, in the torturing of, mm, you were being tested. Right. Um, yeah, I know a lot of people who kind of have seen, because they romanticize this concept they have no interest in going to get help for it because if they are faithful to god god has the power to heal them and so if they're not then like obviously they've offended god in some way and so this is it just becomes this like death trap spiral right so my experience with this is very different um and kind of unique, actually. I think this is one of the the luckiest pieces of my upbringing is that my mom's a nurse, and so my mother, bless her, um, would respond to anti-vaxxers in our community, being like, "Yeah, no, it's very simple science, and I think we all should be vaccinated." <laughs> and like, um, I got chickenpox the day the chickenpox vaccine came out, and she was so upset. Oh. She was like, I was waiting. I was, like, protecting you from all... She'd been, like, quarantining us from all these other kids in our community who had chickenpox because she was hoping that we would be able to get the vaccine. Oh. Um, and, like, my breakout was the day it was released. No. <laughs> um, so she was very, very faithful about boosters and immunizations and she like took care to like delay things and space them out enough so that like you wouldn't have a a very strong immune system response but she was 
So she like definitely did things her own way, but she she understood the science mm-hmm. and she took it seriously. And um, and my mom was a big natural birth advocate, and California's healthcare system treats um, birth in in a much more progressive way than they do here on the East Coast. And so when we moved from California to Virginia, she was shocked. She was like, "This everything about how they let women labor is like thirty years behind." Oh my god, years behind, and I'm she was appalled. Like, the whole, like, strap you to the bed stuff. Oh, like, my God. And it imposed C-sections um, just because we're trying to clear clear beds and, like, move people through um, when it's, like, completely unnecessary and you just need to labor for another six to eight hours. Oh, my God. So she decided to strong arm the system and she would get – she would have her a very – not a, an elaborate birth plan, but a very simple birth plan um, signed off by her pediatrician, mm-hmm. her OBGYN, and her primary physician – and they would be the exact same letter, and it would be a letter from each of those people to the hospital saying, if you mess up with this, there's going to be a lawsuit, basically. Nice. And so she would be able to control it. So she would be like, you don't give my baby sugar water. We do skin-to-skin contact. You don't take the baby away from me. Mm-hmm. Like, we, you know, we do this, we do that. Like, I have to be able to walk around while I labor unless there's, like, an emergency and the baby's heart rate's, like going wild so she had all these things that she did to basically give herself a home birth in a hospital nice and it's because she was very aware of best practices and also very aware of what could go wrong Mm -hmm. and so because of that i got this like really really healthy education about all this stuff and i would run into all these people in our community who were having home births and babies were dying and my mom would get so angry and she got like i remember one time one of her friends they were pregnant at the same time as her due within like two days of each other and her friend took castor castor oil to induce labor which is really really risky because it spikes the baby's heart rate and puts the baby into distress and yes it can induce labor really fast but it also just like causes the entire system to freak out yeah. and it can cause massive trauma in birth. Now the woman was really lucky and was fine, but my mom was like so angry. She like couldn't speak about it for like months. She just was livid. Oh my God. Because that child could have died. Yep. Yeah. And it didn't need to, but the mom was impatient. Yep. So bless her. My mother is uh, so sane in some <laughs> ways. Um, and my father just kind of like took her seriously and never tried to challenge her on it. So he he's totally terrified of everything medical. He's so squeamish. We could, we used to like um, put molasses on our hands when we were like doing di- dinner after dinner cleanup. <laughs> like we'd like pretend to break something and like put molasses on our hands and go be like, Dad, look, it's bleeding. And, like, he'd out. <laughs> like he was so scared of blood, and we thought it was so funny. So um. We're kind of jerk kids. It's fine. <laughs> but this is like the luckiest thing in terms of growing up in that community. Yeah. Yeah. Most of the people that I knew were kind of like at the halfway point between uh, your experience and mine, I think, where like home birthing was a huge part of the community I was in. But everyone was also like, if there's an emergency, we're going to the doctor. And like... Mm-hmm. People were kind of mixed on vaccinations. There were some people who vaccinated and some people who didn't. But for the most part, no one was to the doctors or evil incarnate extent that my parents were, regardless of like 
whether or not they home birth, they were still like, no, if someone breaks a leg or like is dying, obviously the hospital. My parents are like, yeah. we'll anoint you with oil and pray. And I'm like, I thanks. Knew, I had a friend who lost hearing in one ear because her parents, like, I don't know, put oregano or or, or basil oil or something Ooh. or garlic in her ear. And like, when she had an ear infection as an infant and like nothing happened. That's, you're not supposed to do that. <laughs> thanks for joining us this week on Kitchen Table Cult. Um, hope we answered some of your questions. You can send us more at kitchentablecult at gmail.com. Yep, and if you want to learn where to find us on Twitter, how to support us on Patreon, um, or just watch all of the, watch, listen to all the episodes, you can do that at kitchentablecult.com. Yay! Yay! All right, bye! Bye!